0: This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions.
1: My parents raised us to be very very responsible with money. We didn't get presents unless it was your birthday or Christmas. We always had to work for pocket money. There was never, oh, here's an allowance. There was never, here's a freebie. They were very, very intelligent, helped us appreciate the value of money.
0: You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batniwalla. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. Hi everyone. My guest today is Nick Stone, the founder and CEO of Bluestone Lane, the fastest growing premium cafe brand in the United States. He's a former professional Australian rules football player and also a former corporate finance banker. Bluestone Lane is headquartered in New York City with more than 65 cafe locations across the US and it's influenced by Australian independent coffee culture. Nick is the father of two girls, aged two and six, and a four-year-old son. Welcome, Nick.
1: Thank you, Marina. Thank you so much. Great to be here.
0: Nick, from an Aussie rules football player to an investment banker and then to becoming the founder of this fastest-growing premium cafe brand in the US, that sounds like a pretty wild ride. How did you bridge those three very different careers? Tell us how it all happened.
1: It's a great question. They they have a lot of transferable skills and commonality, which which has been very fortunate for me. But I grew up in Melbourne, Australia. I was obsessed with playing AFL football, but I always had these ambitions of doing more than just football. But I was very fortunate to be selected in the draft in my final year of high school in Year Twelve. So before I finished my VCE exams, I'd already been drafted to Collingwood. And then I, while I was playing in the AFL for six seasons across three different teams. Bit of a journeyman. I continued to study at university, completed my bachelor degree in business, banking, and finance, and then at the end of that, my sixties, and I began an internship at an investment bank, and then I was fortunate enough to land a graduate position in at ANZ in their institutional program, and then from there, I always had this dream of working in Wall Street or going to New York. I was obsessed with New York. I had huge fan of rock and roll music, and all my favorite bands were coming out of New York at that time. And I just thought you know, the opportunity to work in the capital of the world was so enticing and exhilarating. And it ended up being that I chased my girlfriend who landed a job before me because of the financial crisis. And I continued studying, and that was one of the opportunities, one of the pathways I found to get to New York was to continue. I completed a Master of Finance, and then I transitioned to an MBA program. And that was sort of the linchpin to, to enable me to go to New York. And then when I got there, I was just struck by how different the coffee culture was. I think the, you know it's easy for Australians uh, to identify that the coffee product is quite different that you commonly find in the US, but it's actually the total experience that, that's real differentiator. And I missed feeling like a local where I'd walk into my local cafe twice a day and they would know my name face an order I'd walk in they'd make it straight away they had that you know there was this reciprocal relationship where I was I knew the staff they knew me and it was just a safe place of community and I just started to study it and realized that hey maybe I should open one little coffee shop around the corner from where I was working in Park Avenue and that was in the middle of 2013 and then since then it's uh, obviously bloomed into something a lot bigger than that now covers nine cities and probably been the category leader in in this Australian premium cafe and coffee shop movement.
0: So the customer experience, how, I know you just explained a little bit about how it's different, but the coffee itself is different. How are Americans responding to this? Obviously, well.
1: Yeah, I think the response has been favorable. That's for sure. We're serving nearly 80,000 people a week now. It's a massive market and the incumbents are so entrenched and so large. 70% of all coffee shops in the US are either Starbucks or Dunkin' brands. So that's pretty formidable competition to come up against. But you know, really at Bluestone, we focus on those quintessential elements that are authentic Australian coffee or cafe provide, which is not only great product, coffee and food, but more importantly, this human connection, this focus on service, on being a local, not a customer, creating environments that have elements of unique and bespoke, that you're providing a boutique at scale experience, a luxury, an affordable luxury experience, a place where it becomes ingrained in your daily ritual. And for us, and for me, I, I didn't think it was exclusively linked to product because if you think about it in Australia, most cafes have great coffee. Having great coffee in Australia is a ticket to participate. It's the land of independence. It's not the land of chains. It's where Starbucks failed. It's where Duncan, Tim Hortons, Pete's, Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf, Costa have never even attempted to enter. You know, you have McDonald's, and you have KFC, and you have some of these other like mass fast food brands down there, but they don't enter because of the coffee culture it is so sophisticated, and people in Australia are so passionate about it, and. Yeah. So really just having a good quality coffee is not a strategy to win. It's, I say this quite frequently that it's, it's a ticket to participate. It's not a strategy to win. And, and for us, coffee's essential element. Food is also critically important, but I think above all is being a place that's centered around human connection that make people feel good that we add and contribute positively to the communities in which we operate. And, I think that's the legacy, that's the North Star that people say, Yeah, when I go to Bluestone, I feel really good and they know me and I feel feel like a local. That's the North Star and I think that's why, you know, I keep pushing it and I'm so fortunate to have an amazing team that buy into that ethos.
0: And you've obviously got the business side of it right. How much has your investment banking background helped you?
1: Well, oh, tremendously, because I never worked a single day in hospitality. So Bluestone Lane was shaped around really two lenses. The first one this customer centricity. So what I missed, what I was trying to fulfill, how different the culture was and and how I wanted to sort of change that in the U.S. And secondly, it was having this background in advising companies and financing companies for nearly 11 years. And the only thing I knew about hospitality is most hospitality ventures are extremely risky and there's a very high mortality rate. There still is. That's for sure. But, you know, I thought that maybe I could leverage my skills in understanding business and my financial acumen to de-risk the startup idea and put in place some controls and just visibility and capital structure that might be more robust. So, yeah, I definitely think I had an advantage there by just knowing, well, just having familiarity with numbers and how to read financial statements, how to put together financial statements and financial modeling. So, yeah, I was very, very fortunate and I've worked always in Teams which were reasonably sector agnostic, which also gave me an advantage. If I was just a specialist mining banker, I don't know how that would translate to general retail hospitality, but because i would worked across a a number of different sectors, it worked quite well. But I think like most critically, if I look across all three careers that I've had to date, the most important thing is being part of a high-performing team and being part of high-performing cultures. And playing professional sport at such a young age when you're drafted at 17, you're thrown into that environment in a really full-on way. It's very confrontational. At The first day you enter a professional football club, the expectations on a At that stage, a boy who's living at home with his parents getting the train every day to school and going to footy training and then doing homework at night, and then suddenly you're competing against Conditioned athletes, and then you're playing in front of 60, 70, 80,000 people, and your name's in the paper every day. That's a big change. But learning how to deal with the resilience and the innovation and ingenuity it requires as an athlete, you're always looking to improve against the competition or even for your spot in the team. As, as in, that was the case for me. You know, I was always just trying to stay on football lists and get a spot. You know, I think that that was really, really valuable and very transferable into banking, which again, investment banking is really a high performance culture. It's very much hard charging driven, our line, but it's, it's certainly very, very much team based. And I absolutely love being part of teams and I love being part of teams that are improving and ultimately successful. You know, very, very much focused on process, but of course, you want outputs that indicate that you're improving and you're learning and you're growing and hopefully you're having some wins. So that's, They've all sort of dovetailed really nicely with Bluestone, given the positioning of Bluestone as a disruptor in the more premium space, not a fast follower. Really trying to differentiate by those three care elements that I mentioned earlier: coffee, food, and service.
0: So you talked a little bit about you know the high performance culture, the team culture, but how did you think about money as you were growing up? What or who were your major influences?
1: I think it's a really interesting question. I think certainly both my parents had different experiences with money. My parents, growing up, my father came from a working class family. His father, my grandfather was a butcher and he had served in World War II in the infantry for four years in Papua New Guinea and was always in the trade. So as a butcher and My father, he went to a technical college, learned how to become a carpenter and then a builder and eventually a developer. And as with development, he had a lot of success and then he had a lot of really disappointing times and financially challenging times. So, you know, I think finances had an enormous amount of stress on my parents. And, you know, I think it was also a contributing factor to their marriage dissolving, you know, unfortunately when I was 13. And you know, at that point when you have you lose the family home and you have such a dramatic change in lifestyle that my mom had already sort of always worked, but certainly for you know a, the first ten years of my life was very much a homemaker and a home looking after myself and my brother. But she's back in the workforce, working as a temp, getting the train in, retraining herself. She continu- she went to night school, and yeah, you know, like it was very very different. It gave me a, a much More extreme appreciation of money, and you know, first time I've seen that. You know, times where we didn't really have any money, or we had very limited amounts, and that was a huge change from phases of my life where you know we were very comfortable. We had a beautiful house, and we had holiday houses and things like that, and you know, that all went away. So it wasn't really spoken about, which is probably in hindsight something that is not great. But I was very, very conscious of it, and my parents raised us to be very, very responsive with money. We didn't get presents unless it was your birthday or Christmas. We always had to work for pocket money. There was never, oh, here's an allowance. There was never, here's a freebie. They were very, very intelligent, helped us appreciate the value of money. So let's say, for example, I wanted new footy boots or the cricket bat. They would often say, well, if you save the first $50, we'll match it. So about the age of, I would say, Fourteen, or maybe thirteen. That was my first job, which was doing chemist rounds. Oh, well, it started with pamphlet delivery, like marketing flies in people's junk mail, essentially in people's mailboxes, and then it progressed to paper rounds. Paper rounds was a really, really tough job back in the. you had to roll the papers and throw them. It wasn't even. It was pre you know, where they were wrapped in plastic, and I'd often have my parents have to come around because I couldn't ride with that many papers on my bike, and it was six in the morning and you know all before school and then eventually chemist rounds which I which I held through my whole high school delivering people's medicines you know it's it's amazing you think about it now there's probably a bit of risk that you know back in the 90s there was no and no one everyone was so trusting And, and then on the school holidays honestly my brother and I used to work for our dad we'd labor on construction sites so if we had two weeks of school holidays we'd work for one week and we'd probably make enough for that term to save and that were those moments where, you know, we could save $50 and we could get a new cricket bat on new footy boots. Now, I think it's really, really important the value of hard work and money came through those examples. You know, I was also very fortunate that when I started earning money, when I was drafting the AFL, there was, that was the first time I was introduced to superannuation and some infrastructure around how I'm going to spend and what I'm going to do with it. So it was, I was lucky.
0: Just to explain the, to the people in the United States, uh, superannuation is the equivalent of the retirement uh, system here. So we're talking about 401k equivalent in the US.
1: I think you know now Australia has the fourth largest captive pool of money under management in the world for a population that only has 25 million. It's just extraordinary. But it's really because of this superannuation compulsory saving 9% of your pre-tax Goes into a fund that uh, you can't access until preservation age, so it's just extraordinary. The compound because it's out of sight, out of mind. It comes out before tax withholding. It's just so lucrative, and uh yeah, underpins so many people's you know retirements. And for young people, it'll be absolutely their retirement.
0: Yeah. So, what are the most important money lessons you think you've learned as an entrepreneur?
1: Oh, this is a really great question. I think the most important thing with money is. As an entrepreneur, is knowing at all times where your cash situation is and how the business is performing. I think I always sort of impart this advice to other founders is that you need to, out of the gate, have a really, really good basic bookkeeper or accountant. You need to know where money's going because it's very, very exciting. You know, it's enticing and exhilarating to get excited about all the marketing and sales initiatives and the growth and hiring people and the new office and all these you know, the new software and all this exciting stuff. But if you're really not managing your expenses and you're flying blind, you're just you're taking enormous risk, more risk than you really should, or really than you need to. So you know the first thing is to always understand your cash position and understand what's going on with the financials. And I've had periods at Bluestone Lane where we've been Really behind, and we're managing the company via balance in the bank account. And that's just too risky. You you don't ever want to be in a situation like that. You want to be able to control your destiny. And if you know what's going on, if you know what your burn rate is, know what you're spending on, then you've got that autonomy and you have control or ownership where you can, or agency where you can make decisions and you can cut your losses, you can cut expenses, you can invest further when you're seeing that it's working really well. That would be the first one. The second one would be you need to build a financial plan. You need to have a plan and and a, a stake in the ground to know what you're trying to achieve. Again, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they sort of focus on product market fit or they focus on building a brand. But I think you need to have an overlay of the financial plan. I know... I've experienced this personally that when you're in a liquidity crisis or when your runway is a matter of months and you're looking at a really, really challenging time, like of course you're going to get distracted and it's very, very hard to just be focused on the business and on your proposition when you've got 50% of your mental state focused on how do I survive and sustain. So having a plan and knowing that at certain milestones you're going to pull back or invest further I think is really, really important. And then the third one that I've really learned about, and this seems a bit ironic that I was a, a banker for 11 years, but the world of private capital is just extraordinary. And I didn't probably appreciate the full complexity and nuance of it immediately with Bluestone. Once I recognized, wow, this is like the wild, wild west, that the number of bespoke terms and you know the structure that you can put in some of these deals. I really became a student of it, and I've used that to the company and, and my own benefit to a degree. It's still a constant learning because it's the art of negotiation, plus you know this balance between structure and valuation of structure and access to capital. So that's been something that's really eye-opening, and you really need a lot of support because if you don't have strong financial acumen, or even if you do, the private world is just another another universe. So you wanna make sure that you're surrounding yourself with a great network and people to to counsel you because it is pretty wealthy.
0: Yeah. And I think I think the same is true if you're an investor in private markets, you need a, a really high degree of sophistication and expertise there. But the first two major learnings you mentioned, I think, really do relate to everyone because they they sort of relate to, you know, knowing what your cash situation is and, and having a budget or a plan that can translate to everyone in everyone's everyday life. So I think those are two really great common sense sort of learnings that everyone can take away.
1: Yeah, you know, what's interesting is, and this was a huge issue in when I was playing professional sports, is a lot of young people suddenly earn certainly a lot more money than their friends or even more money than their parents and they just don't appreciate that their peak earning capacity might be when they're 25 years of age and that's really confronting to think about that you might earn less for the rest of your life than you did in that year but you need to put in place these goals and structures otherwise money can easily just slide into frivolous things things that are not going to structurally help you so early on. And I think that just again, from my parents' background, particularly my mum, just setting goals around saving for key things. So it was, I would, I bought shares, started buying shares at a very, very young age. And then I saved to buy an apartment, which I bought, you know, the year after my AFL career finished. And then it was saving for a car. I ended up buying my grandmother's car and then, you know, saving for a better car. And, saving for an end of season trip where I'd go on holiday because I've, I've got a real thirst for traveling. I'm, my wife does as well. So I'd just be very, very clear with the milestones. And a big part of it is what's measured gets done. And I'm not an out of sight, sort of out of mind. Like I would check my shares and I would check my super and I would check my bank accounts and monitor where the money's going. And I would allocate a certain amount in my sort of every day count and then move the rest to savings and back then i had a you might remember back in the day when they launched sort of these saving maximizers and they you know they, it seemed like everyone had one in australia and and just putting that money away because you'd get the higher rate of interest and it was just a terrific tool to encourage you to be really conscious about what you're saving and what you're spending and i think it just i was very fortunate that i had that environment where we'd had a comfortable life then we had a challenging life and just made you really really appreciate it and yeah i think that most of decisions about money should be common sense if you look at probably the greatest investor of all time warren buffett pretty much everything he says is more common sense and logical it's not about trying to find these crazy levels of alpha you know it's just like put it in the market back the american ingenuity back world growth and the stock market should rise and you know, diversify a little bit but you know just if it seems too good to be true probably is things like that you know if i don't understand it i don't invest in it and even if i do if it just doesn't add up and it doesn't feel compelling to me i pass on it it has to be that level of confidence so whether it was crypto or nfts or anything like i just i had so many people sprucing these things to me And I'm like, yeah, I understand. I'll probably miss out now in the short run. I see how lucrative it is, but I just don't believe that it's sustainable. And, you know, I think I read an article this weekend that 95% of all NFTs globally are worth zero. So, you know, it's just, I don't know. It seems like a Ponzi scheme. And I saw a lot of those in, in banking. So, yeah, I'm happy just to play the long game, get rich slowly. That's probably the advice.
0: Keep it simple. Yeah. I want to touch on something you mentioned before. You talked about the fact that money wasn't talked a lot about in your home, and I hear this so often. Now, you're raising two girls and obviously a son. It seems since I've been doing this podcast, it's particularly important for girls because one thing I've found is that girls are often taught to budget and save, whereas boys, for some reason, I don't know what, are more encouraged to build wealth and invest, So I'm just wondering, I know your girls are really young, but what's sort of probably not doing a lot with them now, probably talking to them a little bit about money, but what do you think your plans and hopes are for the way you raise your girls?
1: Well, certainly my dreams for my two girls are that they live a really independent life so that they have freedom of choice, whether it's career values, you know, their body, their financial independence. Like that's really, really important to me. So yeah, one of the first things that we did is create bank accounts for all the kids and that was something that I never had early on but I know a number of my friends that did and it's amazing like when you have a child like how many people sort of want to contribute and one day when they turn 18 or 16 I'll help them get their first car and (laughs) I didn't have that so that was one of the first things I did is is set up sort of a savings account and a lot of my family they don't know exactly what to buy the kids so instead of you know just buying something that they'll probably outgrow, they actually invest in an account in which the kids can't touch it, I don't think, until they're 16 or 17 or something. So it's starting to, you know, over the next 10, 15 years, like it'll be a meaningful amount. And, you know, for me, I think that education is the most important unlock in all of life and denying someone just the opportunity to know about how budgeting and financial markets and just financial independence works just seems... It seems very naive and narrow-minded, and that won't be the approach that we go with our kids. And you know, I think that we're very, very much focused on teaching the value of money as well—that you you need to have sacrifices to get rewards. So if you we talk about going on holidays, we talk about saving for going to Australia in January, and you know, whether they have a lot of control on that is limited, but we mention it, and we don't do it in a way that's sort of punishment or like, you know, the negative. It's just making people aware that you can't just go out and have takeaway every night and you can't just you have to care for things. You can't just lose your swim goggles and expect that you get another pair the next day or throw your tennis racket and get a new racket. Or I uh, had this morning with my a uh, bike. You know, it's just simple things like that. So they're more aware. And then I think comparing with that is when they do finally appreciate money and they get their own, that you know suddenly they'll take more care of it. And they'll appreciate that it takes a lot of hard work and it's not just given to them, they're not entitled to it. And that, I think that's a you know, huge issue in society that people feel like they're owed it or they deserve it. Most well, things take a lot of work and, you know, a lot of luck and a lot of risk and a lot of effort. And that's the way that we're bringing up the girls. But, yeah, you know, there won't be any... Yeah, we're not going to favor our son and think that, oh, he's going to be the one who's going to be running the household. And that's certainly not Alexandra, my wife's view. She's always been sort of, and that's been really important to her to have financial independence. So when we bought our first property together, which was apartment in New York, we weren't engaged. We weren't married, obviously. We didn't have kids. She had her 50% and I had my 50%. And That was a great way for us to actually commit together as a relationship. But you know, having a mortgage actually brings a ton of discipline to a relationship because you both have financial obligations and you have to make the payment every month. And I think that was really, really helpful for us just to start that journey in our relationship that we committed to buying an asset and servicing it together 50-50.
0: So finally, Nick, what advice do you have for parents raising girls in today's world? (laughs) Well.
1: I think this day and age, it's getting harder. You know, obviously that I grew up that social media being a meaningful part of my childhood. And now it's just ingrained in this culture. And I think that there's this obsession with connectivity, which is almost you know, disintermediating human connection. And I think that that's, that's a real travesty. And I see it in our business, you know, what we really, really are focused on bringing people together and. The rates of mental health and loneliness and isolation are just so confronting. So, you know, that'd be one of the biggest things that I work with our kids and knowing that they're safe and that we love them unconditionally and that we're here to listen to them and counsel and support them. But we're obviously there to challenge them. You know, it's not just one way. Life doesn't work that way. There's going to be debate. There's going to be different conflicting views. You're going to have to, at time, disagree and commit. And that's that's just life. And that's the beauty of life. And it provides some of the best lessons, having different perspectives. So I think for us, it's making sure that you know we're a very, very supportive environment and that we acknowledge that the world is very different and it's dynamic. And I don't think we have the answers on how do we deal with the amount of misinformation or this digital connectivity. I think that that'll be a new paradigm, especially in a 10 years time. But, you know, we just want to make sure that the environment that they're in is safe, loving, and that we want them to chase their dreams and, you know, we, we want to support them along the way, but, you know, it won't be just given to them because they're our children. It'll be through their own dedication and care and trial that they achieve, but it'll be in an environment that's incredibly supportive. So, you know, that's my perspective on it. Alex, I might have a different one that. I'm so, I love having two daughters and, you know, I have only one brother and it's just been transformational and it's so great. So I'm very fortunate. I'm, I'm so lucky to be their, their dad.
0: Nick Stone, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you very much. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and at bankingongirls.com.